Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. These passages are... Uh, I suspect well-known to, to many of us. Um, and uh, it starts by saying that Paul was waiting for them at Athens. So he, the, the context is that uh, Paul's been chased from city to city prior to this story. There's people out to get him because he's preaching the gospel, which is turning the world upside down. And, they don't, and the people don't like it. So they, they, there's mobs chasing after him. He's had to be smuggled out of a city and he finds himself in Athens waiting for Timothy and Silas. And so, you know, if, if you find yourself waiting for some friends in a city, what would you do? Of course, you'd go out to the marketplace and proclaim Jesus and his resurrection to everyone who will listen. That's what Paul does. And that's where our story is today. And it's this incredible story, I think, that stands out among the speeches in Acts as being quite unique and different, largely because of the audience that Paul is speaking to here. And it gives us a lot of insight into how, as God's people, we engage with the culture around us and how the gospel is able to speak into different times and places and cultures. So um, as we explore this passage and see Paul going toe-to-toe with these Greek philosophers and the gospel going head-to-head with the Athenian gods, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, remarkable story. We thank you for the ways in which your truth, the the truth of our Lord Jesus, who is risen and reigning, is uh, able to speak into and be understood in the language, in the heart language, in the minds and the imagery of every culture, Lord. And uh, Lord, Lord, may you help us to take away from this passage and may you give us wisdom for how we engage with the culture around us as your people here in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Could I get the slides up, Murray? That's all right. It's a good-looking family there. That's, that's <coughs> all, right. all right. The unknown God made known. So there's a well-known story that and some of you might be familiar with this story it goes like this there's a group of people gathered around an elephant in a dark room where they're unable to see anything at all and each of them are asked to reach out and touch the elephant and guess what it is that's in the room and so the first person reaches out and grasps hold of the elephant's trunk exclaiming well this is obviously a snake The second person reaches out and takes hold of the elephant's tusk and guesses, well, surely it's a spear, a weapon used for war. A third person reaches out and feels the flapping ears of the elephant, suggesting, could could this be a large bird or a giant handheld fan? A fourth person reaches out and runs their hands along the sturdy, coarse leg of the elephant and says, it's a giant rock, immovable and strong. And the final person reaches out for the elephant's tail and recoils, crying out, it's a whip swishing around dangerously. 
Each of these people have grasped something of the elephant. But, but in their limited experience, their conclusions of what the elephant is like end up being way off. And in some ways, we might imagine the Athenians in our story today a bit like these people gathered around the elephant in a dark room, reaching out in their blindness, grasping for God, forming pictures in their head of what they think God is like and worshipping these myriad blurry, false imitations, or idols that actually look nothing like the true living God. And so in, in this passage, we're given insight into the Athenian cultural and religious world. So Athens, we learn, uh, uh, was something like may, maybe a Paris of our modern era, perhaps, uh, a place where the latest ideas writings, art and culture were embraced. So Athens was at the cutting edge, a cultural hub. Trade routes came through Athens, so it was this repository of knowledge where ideas from all over the world were brought in and adopted. And I think there's this touch of humour here in the passage when Luke writes, can I get the next slide? Maria, it's not clicking for me. Luke writes, these words, and, and you might have picked it up as we read, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Uh, I'm not sure if that description is meant to be endearing or not, but it, it, it gives us this insight into the kind of culture we're talking about here. Knowledge is worshipped in Athens. And, it, and this worship of knowledge was reflected even in their religion, where their vast pantheon of gods was a source of pride, showing how much they supposedly knew about the spiritual world. And so in Athens, built on a large hill called the Acropolis, and some of you may have, have been there and, and seen the remnants of this, were, the, were many prestigious and exquisite buildings, wonders of the ancient world, temples to hundreds of different gods. And it's, it's said that in Athens there were more gods than people. And even Paul, who had visited many cities around the known world, was taken aback as he entered into Athens by just how many gods were worshipped there. It says in verse 16, as Paul wanders around the city, that he was provoked or distressed in his spirit. So while we might visit as tourists and be amazed by these architectural wonders, Rather than being impressed, Paul was grieved by what he saw. Gods, gods and more gods. A marketplace of gods you could buy at the marketplace. Priests that you could pay so that they would pray to the gods for you. It was, the economy was, a, was built around the worship of these gods. And so Paul, seeing all of this, he just, being Paul, can't contain himself. And so he speaks in the marketplace, proclaiming the good news of Jesus and his resurrection. And as he does so, the great philosophers of Athens, these minds known throughout the world, always keen to learn something new, they, they invite him to the Areopagus, a meeting of the Areopagus on a local hilltop, probably overlooking the, the pantheon of temples and, and gods up there, and ask him to explain himself. 
And I find it quite fascinating that in this city that's full of hundreds of gods, the one that Paul draws their attention to is their unknown God. And so there's a bit of an altar, that's an altar to an unknown God. That's a Roman altar. I don't have a picture of a Greek version of it, but it's the same kind of idea. Cultures in this time often had these statues to unknown gods. But there's a story or a local legend of the unknown god in Athens, and it goes like this. In about 500 BC, there was a plague in Athens where thousands of people died. And the people of Athens assumed that one of their gods must be angry with them. So one by one, they prayed to all these gods, but the plague just wouldn't stop. And so eventually they called in a poet philosopher named Epimenides, who's quoted in this passage. And he came to the conclusion that it wasn't one of the Athenian gods who was angry with them. It must be some other unknown god. And so they did this kind of experiment where they would sacrifice sheep at various locations in a field. Uh, wherever the sheep laid down, they'd sacrifice that sheep and build an altar in that place. And apparently after a while, the plague eventually stopped. And I guess if you sacrifice enough sheep, eventually that's going to coincide with the plague stopping. But the altars to the unknown God remained, but they were largely forgotten and insignificant, uh, overshadowed by the masterpieces of the Parthenon. So Paul, as he describes what God is like to the people of Athens, he doesn't point to the impressive 12-metre, 1,000-kilogram gold statue of Athena or the 50 intricately carved images of the Greek pantheon. He points to this forgotten, unknown one. And in a city that's so proud of its religious knowledge, in a, in a culture where there's no end to their gods, the one that most resembles the true God is actually their unknown one. And the irony, I think, is, is this. What the Athenians don't know about God is more accurate than what they think they do know. As Paul goes on to introduce them to their unknown God, there are three things about his speech that are worth reflecting on. So, firstly, Paul draws upon Athenian language and imagery and poetry here. And, and in most of the speeches in the book of Acts, there's a strong emphasis on God's work through Israel and how Jesus is Israel's Messiah. But did you notice in this speech, none of that language is used? Israel is not mentioned at all. He doesn't mention Jesus as the Messiah or the Christ or the Son of God. In fact, Jesus' name is not mentioned. He simply calls him the man that God has appointed. And notice too that Paul makes specific mention of Greek poetry. So he, he quotes two Greek poets in verse 18 where he says, In him we live and move and have our being. That was a Greek philosopher, Epimenides, who, who quoted that. And the other one by a philosopher called Aratus, a poet, poet philosopher, said, we are his offspring. But who they're talking about, they were talking most likely about Zeus. And so Paul takes these quotes about a pagan god and twists them and points them towards Jesus. 
And, and I think this teaches us a couple of things about the good news of Jesus. Firstly, every culture, even the most pagan cultures, contain echoes of truth. Now, why is that the case? Well, because we're all made in the image of God. And a bit like how if you leave a person in a room wearing a blindfold, they'll eventually find the door, the, the door handle. As, God's people, as people who are made in the image of God, as we relate to one another, we will bump into ideas that contain echoes of the true way of things. And, and so Paul doesn't have to go and dismantle every single part of Athenian culture. There are elements of it that actually harmonise somewhat with the gospel. But the, but the second thing that this shows us about the gospel is that the good news of Jesus is flexible and relevant to every culture, time and place. And, and when I say it's flexible, I don't mean that the core truths change, but that the language and the imagery that we draw upon to introduce people to Jesus is. The gospel can be taught to Jewish people with language like Messiah, full of Old Testament stories. It can be explained to Athenians through the image of an unknown God and with references to Greek poets. It can be explained to Indigenous Australians through familiar art and images. It can be revealed to a child in the most simple words. And it can be explained in language that challenges the greatest minds of our time. God is the God of all nations, tribes and cultures. His word speaks into every corner of the world. And his words are able to speak into the most precious stories and longings of every society and every person because our longings and our stories reflect something of our longing for God and our search for God. The second thing about Paul's speech worth noting is how he unboxes the true God, while packing away the Athenian idols. So he says in verses 24 and 25, and this is really Paul's focus for most of the speech, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God is a God of life. He is a living God. Even the quotes by the, the, the philosophers were about how God is a living God, in contrast to the Athenian gods. And, and so in a city that's littered with temples, imagine you're sitting there at the Areopagus, the temples of these gods all around you, exquisite buildings. These words would have been so poignant. Paul's saying, look, look around you. Look at what you can see. See all these temples that you take so much pride in? If God made all things, as your own poets have declared, if he's the one in whom we have life and breath, don't you see the folly of trying to worship gods who sit passively in a little box? God doesn't live in a box created by human hands. Rather, we live in him. And so Paul, 
Paul's inviting the Athenians to turn on the light so that they can see the whole elephant. The God of all things is so much bigger and more amazing than the Athenian pantheon. He's saying, don't settle for a tail or a trunk or an ear and arrogantly think that you've got God worked out. Turn on the light. Look at the living God. See a God whose temple is bigger than the height and depth and width of all creation. And understand that you are living in his temple. He is not living in yours. It's fascinating uh, when you contrast Deuteronomy. We, we heard that reading from Deuteronomy earlier and the book of Acts. Because just as Paul enters Athens with his eyes wide open to the idolatry there, so Israel were told to go into the promised land with their eyes wide open to the idolatry of the nations around them. But where Israel were told to smash and destroy and to wage war against those idols, Paul responds very differently. He simply speaks the gospel of Jesus and the gospel itself does the rest. Paul believed in the power of Jesus and his gospel to reveal truth and to put false idols in their place. He didn't feel the need to go and push over statues and smash things apart. And by the end of Paul's speech, take some time this week to read through it, as by the end of the speech, these mighty statues of Athens look decidedly less impressive before the living God. The final thing about Paul's speech that, that's worth reflecting on is that the, the fulcrum, the, the crux of this whole encounter lies in the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection. That Paul finishes his speech with a challenge to the Athenians. He says, in the past, God overlooked this kind of ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In other words, while your ignorance up until this point in history might be somewhat understandable, something has changed. It's no good anymore to sit in the room pretending that all you can see is the elephant's tail when God has come in flesh to switch on the light and reveal himself in Jesus. Now, you might think it's safer to do that. It might be more comfortable to keep your eyes closed and pretend that God still fits in the box that you created, but you'd just be living an illusion. Paul's final words to the Athenians are these. He has given proof of all of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. And it's at this point that the, the audience who have been enraptured by Paul's speech, it would seem, they begin to divide. Some of them sneer. Some are curious. Some, like Dionysius and Damaris, believe. As beautiful and clever as Paul's speech is here, ultimately it comes down to this. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. If he did, then he is God and the light in the room has been switched on. If he didn't, then we're all still just groping around in the dark searching for God. 
There's many other things we could look at in this passage. But I'd like to spend a bit of time thinking about the wisdom this passage has to teach us about how we engage as God's people with the culture that we live in as well. So four things I'd like to reflect upon. First of all, we need to live in our culture with our eyes wide open. Just as Paul, when he arrives in Athens, takes the time to explore the city, speak to the people, walk around and see the temples and the idols, and observe the society and learn the culture. He, he familiarised himself with the philosophy and the poetry that the people held dear. And it's this keen knowledge of Athenian culture that frames his language. Likewise, we need to know the culture that we live in. And we need to know it well. There's this temptation that arises in Christian circles from time to time to withdraw from culture. We must resist that. Paul went to the temples and the marketplaces in Athens to learn and to listen. But let me ask you, if you really want to understand Australian culture well, if you want to learn what makes the people of Springwood and Winmalee, this area, tick, where would you go to learn? Yeah, the pub. Yeah, that's the first thing on my list, the pub. Yeah. Where else would you go? So recreational kind of activities, those sorts of things? Playground or a school? Sorry? Sporting clubs. Go to the sporting stadium. You learn a lot about Australian culture if you go to the sporting stadium. Talk to our neighbours. Yeah. So it's not just, and I think we need to be careful about this, it's not just about standing on the street and watching. It's about knowing people, being present to people, listening to their stories, learning what people love, what drives them, their loves, their fears, their anxieties, their hopes, their dreams. That's where we really start to hear what Australian culture is about. The church will always struggle to engage with the culture if her people aren't present in the culture as observers, learners and present listeners. Secondly, as we engage in our culture, I think this chapter really encourages us to look for the echoes of the gospel. Touch points, touch points where there's some kind of connection between the truth of our Lord Jesus and the day-to-day -day reality of people's lives. So, so as you walk around the local streets, as you chat with neighbours and friends, as you hear about their longings and dreams and fears, how does the gospel speak into those things? Where are the echoes of the gospel? But Perhaps, like Paul, we might find some of those touch points in poetry, literature, art and, and movies that our cultures, culture holds dear. Because often it's in the arts that culture is reflected. And so this got me thinking, well, what are some of the modern day philosophers, like in Athens, what are some of the modern day philosophers and poets who really capture the imagination of our culture? And I couldn't go past the Beatles. So I know they're... No, it's a few 
generation or two on. But I think that these words really do still resonate with some of the longings and desires in our world today. So listen to these words. I'm going to play this song that you'll know. The song Across the Universe. And uh, let's... I want you to listen for echoes of the gospel here. you keep singing. Does anyone know what that last line means? You've probably heard it hundreds of times. Yeah, yes. So I, I believe this was when the Beatles actually intentionally, they went searching for God, like searching for the elephant in the dark room. Uh, they went to India and were searching for God. Uh, and it means, uh, uh, there's different ways of interpreting it, but one, it, but it literally means glory to the shining remover of darkness or glory to the divine remover of darkness. So this, this is a deeply spiritual and religious song. And it describes the surge, as we said before, that the Beatles are, and I think, Many in our society still today are on for a divine remover of darkness who brings limitless, undying love. And what we have in these words of the Beatles, like we said, reaching out in that dark room, trying to understand, grasp for something of God. And the result is this vague, blurry, incomplete picture that, that looks really very little like the real God from those words. But, but, but the gospel gives shape and flesh and bones to the longings expressed here. The gospel tells us there is a God of undying, limitless love who is known and named. There is a shining remover of darkness, a divine remover of darkness who has even brought light into the darkness of death. And his name is Jesus. And so the imaginations of the greatest poets, even the Beatles, can only produce a faint echo of how magnificent he truly is. Jesus is the one worthy of all glory. Preaching the gospel through the Beatles. Paul, the, the Bible Paul, I mean, would be proud, I reckon. Thirdly, as we engage with our culture, as, as we listen and learn and get to know people deeply, this passage challenges us to introduce them to Jesus and his resurrection. And that's, this is the fulcrum on which faith turns. Like Paul in Athens, we should expect that when we speak of a man who died and rose back to life, that we'll receive a mixed response. 
some people will sneer and scoff at that idea. We should also expect curiosity. Both the uh, I'd like to know more kind and the kind where people suddenly look at you like you belong in a circus. But we should also expect that people will respond with belief. There's that saying, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And, and, and as much as I appreciate the importance of love displayed through action, it is necessary at some point for people to hear that Jesus has risen from the dead. That God has come in flesh and switched on the light. Finally, this passage encourages us to trust the power of Jesus, to trust the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel to tear down idols, expose truth, and to capture hearts with the overpowering grace and love of Jesus. We, we, we might lament, we, we might even be distressed and provoked like Paul about the idolatry of our culture. We might feel the pull and the lure of the idolatry of our culture, ourselves. We might be concerned for a friend or a family member about how their, their choices are leading to destructive behaviour and a lessening of life. We might grieve at the way that our society has turned sex into an ultimate idol and, and what that is doing to families and relationships. But the gospel has the power to break down such idols and reveal them for what they are, rendering them powerless in your life and in the life of our culture. But these idols aren't ultimately broken down by us smashing them like warriors in the days of Deuteronomy, forcefully trying to change the hearts of others with our own hands, but by people coming to know how the resurrected Jesus fulfills life in ways no idol ever can. And what this passage, I think, shows us is that when you peer into the magnificent sunrise of the risen Jesus... The lesser things, all other idols, fade to mere silhouettes. Even the mightiest gods of the Athenian pantheon crumble before the unknown God who Jesus has made known. So how about we pray now that God would give us the wisdom to engage as God's people in our culture. Let's pray for our neighbours, our friends and our families. And let's give thanks to God for turning on the light for Jesus and his resurrection. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you that you are the God of all things. That in you we live and move and have our being. That we live in your temple, you do not live in ours. And Lord, how ludicrous it is that we would worship a thing, an idol, uh, something made of gold or silver or, or anything else. Why would we cre worship created things when we can worship you, our creator? And Lord, we thank you the way in which your gospel of the risen Lord Jesus reigning and ruling over his kingdom a kingdom that you invite us to be a part of. We thank you that that speaks into every nation, tribe and culture because you are the God of all. May you give us wisdom, Lord, to 
know where the echoes of your gospel are, to, to, to know what the longings and fears and hopes and dreams of our culture are and the people around us. And may you help us, give us the words through your spirit to introduce people to Jesus, that they might know the fullness of life that can only be found in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.